Rise and Shine History Buffs, it's time for another episode of Monday Morning General. Here we give you the play-by-play and analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, hanging out with Bjorn, and today we continue our discussion on the Battle of Midway. All right, Bjorn, we are, last time we left off, right? Aircraft carriers, airplanes are loaded, ready to go. Americans know where the Japanese are. Japanese don't know where the American carriers are. Uh, This thing's about to kick off. Anything to say before we jump into the details of this battle? No, just, you know, keep keep in mind as we're going through this, that fact is the most important one. The United States understands what's going on. They've been reading the mail of the Japanese and the Japanese don't have any idea where things are. And that'll play very pivotally, very importantly into this battle. Yep. Other things to keep in mind, we have pretty much parity between aircraft for each side, right? The Japanese and the Americans have similar amount of aircraft. Japanese have four aircraft carriers. The Americans have three aircraft carriers and the island of Midway that they're launching from. So it's a pretty like it's like a one on one mono e mono fight here, right? Like this is uh you know Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson going at it one on one. As the sun began to rise on June fourth, nineteen forty two, the Battle of Midway was already well underway. Nine B seventeens took off from Midway at twelve thirty in the morning for the first air attack. Three hours later, they found Tanaka's transport group. Harassed by heavy anti-aircraft fire, they dropped their bombs. No significant damage was inflicted. Early the following morning, the Japanese oil tanker Akabono Maru sustained the first hit when a torpedo from an attacking PBY struck her around 0100. This was the only successful air-launched torpedo attack by the U.S. during the entire battle. That's something that you need to keep in mind. During this battle, the United States will launch numerous torpedoes at so Japanese many torpedoes. So, so many, many torpedoes. <laughs> And this is the only one that actually hits its target and successfully detonates. So keep that in mind. We'll have a discussion later on about that. At 0430 AM, Japanese Admiral Nagumo launched his initial attack on Midway, consisting of 36 D-3A Val dive bombers and 36 B-5N Kate torpedo bombers, escorted by 36 Mitsubishi A6M Zero fighters. At the same time, he launched his seven search aircraft. That's where, you know, Japanese reconnaissance in this entire battle is completely insufficient. Nagumo's bombers and fighters, they're taking off. Um, 11 American PBYs are taking off. So here we've got Nagumo, the guy who doesn't know really what's going on. He's got an idea what's going on, but he doesn't truly know. And he's launching seven search aircraft. Yeah. Well, at the same time, the United States, well, Nagumo's bombers and fighters are taking off in search of these carriers. 11 American PBYs are going to be taken off. Well, they're not going after the carriers. Nagumo's bombers are going straight to Midway. They know where Midway's right. at, but they have no idea where the carriers are. Right. Midway is the trap, right? The Japanese are attacking Midway to lure the American carrier. Because Yamamoto and Nagumo don't think the Americans know this attack is happening, right? They think they're doing another surprise Pearl Harbor type attack, right? So they are going to attack Midway with the with their bombers to lure the American aircraft carriers out of hiding. That's what those reconnaissance aircraft are looking for, right? Attack the island. We know where the island is. The island's on a map. The island's easy to find. We're going to find the island. We're going to attack the island. It's going to send the alarm up to the U.S. Navy. Nimitz will send in his carriers to go and take care of this threat. So that's what these, what, what, seven reconnaissance aircraft, that's, that's what they're looking for, right, is that American carrier group. Yep, that's what they're doing. At 0534, a PBY reported sighting two Japanese carriers and another spotted the inbound airstrike 10 minutes later. Midway's radar picked up the enemy at a distance of several miles and interceptors were scrambled. So Bjorn, there was a major issue, right, with these with these bombers, right? Yeah. So the United States, we sent our bombers off and they're unescorted. So right. there aren't any fighters there. They're headed off to attack the Japanese carriers. Their fighter escorts are going to remain behind. So the, the, the radar on Midway Island 
identifies, hey, this attack force is coming in, and we've also found these carriers. So number one, we need to sink these carriers. Yep. Number two, we need to defend the island from the bombers that are on their way in. So it's a tough decision, mm-hmm. but they split their forces. So American fighters are going to stay behind on the island of Midway. They're going to try and defend the island. They're going to be fairly unsuccessful in that aspect. A lot of damage is going to be taken by these planes and the planes on the ground. But then at the same time, these bombers that are going to be taking off of Midway in search of and after these carriers, they're going to be very unsuccessful as well. Because remember that cap, that combat air patrol that the Japanese are flying around their carrier, that didn't leave. Those carriers are still are still being defended in one shape or form. Yeah. And yeah, so and you're sending your bombers off that don't have any real defense measures against a fighter aircraft, right? The defense measure is the escort fighter planes that should be flying with these bombers. And so they're going in unaided to and they had to drop the bombs, get back to midway. That's all they And remember, do. these bombers, they're the dauntlesses. They're the garbage can of the sky at the time. This will be the last time in the war that we will utilize these planes. And so they're not good. They're not fast. Our torpedoes are garbage, and and it's going to be a disaster, this first wave of the American attack. But let's talk about what the Japanese successfully accomplished at yeah. Midway. At 0620, Japanese carrier aircraft bombed and heavily damaged the U.S. base at Midway. Of the 108 Japanese aircraft involved in this attack, 11 were destroyed, 14 were heavily damaged, and 29 were damaged to some degree. So was this was this attack successful at neutralizing the aircraft threat from Midway? You know, initially, uh, they wanted to completely destroy the the air runway. They right. wanted to neutralize the bombers. But here's the problem. They were not capable of successfully destroying that air, that air base. American bombers are still going to be able to use it to refuel and attack the Japanese forces. Most of Midway's land-based defenses are going to remain intact. Uh, these Japanese pilots report to Nagumo that in order to successfully uh, nullify the defenses of the island of Midway in preparation for, remember, they're still planning on uh, landing troops on Midway. These Japanese pilots in that first wave, they're going to say, hey, we need, an, we need to attack again. And that right there is an important asterisk to remember that in this entire equation of the battle, the Japanese admiral is believing that he needs to conduct a second attack on the island of Midway. But remember, Brendan, something that they don't quite realize is that there are carriers in the water right next door. Within range. Yeah. So, yeah, American bombers based on Midway haven't taken off prior to the Japanese attacks, made several attacks on the Japanese carrier forces. The Japanese repelled these attacks and the attacking force, losing only three Zero fighters while destroying 17 American. While the airstrikes from Midway were going on, the American submarine Nautilus, commanded by Lieutenant Commander William Brockman, found herself near the Japanese fleet. At 0820... She made an unsuccessful torpedo attack on a battleship and then had to dive to evade the escorts. At 9.10, she launched a torpedo at a cruiser and again had to dive to evade the escorts, with destroyer Arashi spending considerable time chasing Nautilus. Again, torpedoes fail. American torpedo failure. This is, this is going to be uh, endemic to American forces here during this battle. You launch a torpedo, it fails. All right, so Nagumo has a problem, right? He's got four carriers. And he has to continually get his cap in the air. He has to get bombers in the air. And he has to get fighters in the air to escort those bombers. So he's Well, got and not, not only that, Brendan, but he needs to have them armed appropriately. appropriately so are you going to, are you attacking Midway? Are you attacking a carrier? What are you attacking with your bombers? If you're attacking a carrier, you're going to have a different armament completely than what you're going to put on if you're going to be land, attacking a land-based force. So... 
uh, torpedoes, bombs. These are interchangeable with a lot of these planes. And he's going to have problems. He's going to say, hey, we got to do this. Well, scrap that. We got to do that. This is a dilemma that he's going to run into. So in accordance with Yamamoto's orders for Operation MI, Admiral Nagumo had kept half of his aircraft in reserve, two squadrons each of dive bombers and torpedo bombers. The dive bombers were as yet unarmed. And this was doctrinal. Dive bombers were to be armed on the flight deck. The torpedo bombers were armed with torpedoes should any American warships be located, right? So Nagumo is like trying to keep this reserve force ready so that once those aircraft are spotted or those carriers are spotted, he can launch his bombers with the torpedoes already armed so that they can go and do a quick strike. Uh, but he's now getting reports back from his first aerial attack on Midway that we need to attack the island again. So he's like, well, we got to get these torpedoes off and start getting bombs on, right? Yep. So... At 7.15, he's going to order those reserve planes, the ones that are yet unarmed. He's going to say, hey, contact fuse general purpose bombs against land targets. Let's go. Second strike against Midway. So rearming had been underway for about 30 minutes when at 07.40, a scout plane that had been delayed signaled that it had sighted a sizable American naval force to the east. But that pilot also didn't say what was in that American carrier force or what that naval force was. So he just he's just sending out a message that says, hey, I, f- I found them. Yeah, and that's it. So Nagumo quickly reverses his orders and demands that the scout plane ascertain the composition of the American force. Another 20 to 40 minutes elapsed before the scout finally radioed the presence of a single carrier in the American force. This was one of the carriers from Task Force 16. The other carrier was not sighted. Task Force 16 was the uh, force that had the Enterprise and the Hornet. In. So so this Japanese scout plane, I, he found one of them. Either yep. he found the USS Enterprise or the USS Hornet. Um Super bad move on his part to not successfully identify, hey, I've found a carrier, I've found two carriers, or just saying what he's found in general. Yeah. This is this is a serious oversight on that Japanese and pilot's listen, position. Carriers look way different from cruisers and destroyers, right? <laughs> like, it's not, I, I get he's probably pretty far away from the thing, but I mean, come on, guy. How well, do you- when you're putting together a message, just just say what you see, man. Don't you be like, I found them, they're here. Well, who's them? You could right. easily say, I found carrier group. I found a carrier. Right. You know? So a pretty classic military report that comes up to talk about any sort of any activity you find is called a salute report. So a salute report uh, has report lines that indicate the size of the enemy force, the activity of the enemy force, uh, the location of the enemy force with grid coordinates, the time that you saw them, and then the equipment that is in within that. So yeah, part of your salute report or spot report back to your higher headquarters should be what is in that. Like just saying like, I found the enemy does not help you at all understand the situation uh, of what's going on around you. So a proper salute report could have saved 20 to 40 minutes before that scout. Uh, He had to do a second radio transmission. Uh, Had he done it right away, salute report appropriately, you save 20 to 40 minutes. Now, that being said, remember these planes are unarmed at the time. They're being armed with contact bombs for land-based targets. They're going to have to be rearmed with something different. And so that 20 to 40 minutes is arguable whether that would have been plus or minus because we still had the Japanese rearming their weapons in order to attack that group. They said, we know that there is a ship there. We're going to go after it. We don't know what it is. And so there was some time that was negated in that failed radio report, but still, the idea is the same. Do your reports right. The one thing to also keep in mind with these carrier battles is timing is so incredibly crucial. If you look at you know the order of operations that happened that day, 
there's constant activity on the flight deck, right? A cap leaves, a cap comes back, a cap leaves, a cap leaves, a cap comes back. We're going to bring up fighters. Okay, we're going to arm the fighters. We're going to bring up bombers. We're going to arm the bombers out, out. We're going to bring people in. These flight decks are very cramped. You can only do so much on them. Any any time that you lose is crucial, and it plays a big part in why the Japanese are going to lose this battle. So Nagumo was now in a quandary. So he had his rear admiral, which was leading Carrier Division 2, which consisted of Hiryu and Soryu, recommended that Nagumo strike immediately with the forces at hand. 16 Achi D3A1 dive bombers on the Soryu, and 18 from the Hiryu, and half of the combat air patrol. The major problem was that Nagumo's opportunity was limited by the impending return of his midway strike force. The returning strike force was low on fuel and needed to land promptly or would have to ditch into the sea. So... Nagumo, he's juggling here. As yep. you said, this flight deck is incredibly busy. He's juggling because he had just sent out his entire an entire force to attack the island of Midway. What do you say? Those 108 planes? Yeah, 108. So he's got to collect these guys yep. while he's sending more out. So he's trying to keep all the balls in the air at the same time without his planes running out of fuel. But to make matters worse here, he's got this combat air patrol operations working through the preceding hour. The Japanese never had an opportunity to position their reserve planes on the flight deck. So not only does he have planes coming in that he needs to collect, not only does he have planes that he needs to get out, but because of this complete, this, uh, this air cover that he's got circling his, his aircraft carriers. Cause remember the Japanese had sustained an attack at this point in time by American forces from Midway. Cause remember those planes on Midway, they took off prior to the Japanese attacking the Island of Midway. So these guys basically crossed each other's paths mm-hmm. as they're attacking each other. And so he's got to keep this cap in the air and in keeping the cap in the air, he never had the ability to pre-stage these reserve planes. He has he has a quandary in his hands. He's got four or five balls in the air, and he can't catch them all at the same time. To make matters worse, the Japanese naval doctrine at the time preferred launching fully constituted strikes instead of piecemeal attacks. So instead of saying, hey, we can get 16 planes out right now, and then we've got to collect 16 he says, no, we have to. Doctrine says we send everything out and we collect everything back in. And Nagumo is a slave to the doctrine. The, <laughs> you know, the military doctrine is great. Right? It gives you a framework on how to conduct military operations. But once you get into a battle, you have to be flexible and be able to react on your feet. And Nagumo does not do that here. So the arrival of another land-based American airstrike at 0753 gave way to the need to attack the island again. So in the end, Nagumo decides to wait for his first strike force from Midway to land and then launch the reserve, which would by then be properly armed with torpedoes to attack those carriers that that scout plane had found. Had Nagumo elected to launch the available aircraft around 0745 and risk the ditching of his airborne strike force, they would have formed a powerful and well-balanced strike package that had the potential to sink two American carriers. But here's the thing, Brendan, you got to keep this in mind. The constant rearming and refueling of aircraft inside the ships, which is what they're doing to keep their flight deck cleared, that presented a significant hazard in the terms of damage that would be created if a carrier were to be hit in an attack. All right. Keeping them on the deck, uh, also more dangerous uh, them getting, you know, to the idea of them getting airborne. But when you've got stuff inside your carrier being armed, being refueled, something hits that and it could cause a domino effect. All right. But here's the thing. The bottom line at this point, with all the shuffling that Nagumo's trying to, to move from one place to another, there is absolutely no way to stop this American strike that's on its way against him. So Fletcher, the United States uh, carrier, he was in charge of one of the carriers. 
Um, he launches his planes beginning at seven o'clock yeah. in the morning. So a little sidebar here, Bjorn, when it comes to like, so aircraft land back onto the aircraft carrier, do they stay on the flight deck to get refueled and rearmed? Or are they put into the elevator, brought down to the hangar level to do all of that and then brought back up? So what the Japanese, you, you've got a lot of storage capacity. Now the Japanese have half of their planes and their aircraft carriers at this point in time, right? Because remember, yeah. they're, not, they're not doing what the United States did, which was find any plane anywhere, find any pilot right. anywhere. The Japanese are keeping together. So they've got half of the, the capacity, which tells me that they've got plenty of room in some cases. Now, you are going to make the best decision you possibly can if you are not tied to doctrine. Now, if you need to keep that flight deck clear, you have to keep that flight deck clear. If you're capturing planes who are up in the air doing their combat air patrol and they need fuel, well, they need to touch down, they need to refuel and go. The Japanese at this point in time, they're going to have bombs, torpedoes, uh, fuel hoses all over the place. They're going to have them in on the, the flight deck. They're going to have them on the flight deck. They're yeah. going to have them inside the uh, yeah. the aircraft carrier. They're going to have they're going to have fuel all over the place. And this is what makes it so difficult is because in their hesitancy to to commit to a single avenue, but at the same time their their haste to get this stuff done. They're going to be leaving bombs on the flight deck that have no no real purpose there. They should be in the magazine. Now, remember, the magazine of an air of a aircraft carrier, the magazine of a vessel, is the most secure, the safest area of the ship. Because if that thing goes up, it goes up. Boom, the whole thing. Look at the look at the HMS Hood when the Bismarck hit it. Uh, it completely annihilated every single British sailor on the Hood died except for three because of that explosion. Yeah. All right. So it's important to keep the munitions that you need in an area where you can access them, but any extra needs to be in that magazine to protect your entire vessel. The Japanese are not going to do that. The other thing to keep in mind here too, and I think this was a, a miss on the Gumo's part, you know, the, the attack at Midway was only to lure the American aircraft carriers into position where they could be found. So why is, he, why, why is he going for a second strike? Right. Especially like knowing that these American bombers aren't effective, right? These bombs and, and torpedoes aren't sinking carriers, right? Like you had the cap up there, but get the, like you have to destroy the carrier. Like, that was your mission. It's, right. not, it's not Midway. Like they never actually wanted to land at Midway. They didn't care about a, a land invasion on Midway. Yamamoto wanted to destroy carriers and Nagumo just didn't, didn't do that. But they didn't piece the puzzle together. Yeah. They didn't realize the carriers were there. And that's the biggest problem. You need more than seven reconnaissance planes. It helps. So while the Japanese were orchestrating all of their attacks, all their cap, trying to figure out, you know, what's happening to the flight deck, rearming, all this, the Americans had already launched a carrier aircraft against the Japanese. Fletcher, in overall command aboard the Yorktown, and benefiting from PBY sighting reports from the early morning, ordered Spruance, Task Force 16 Commander of Hornet and Enterprise, to launch against the Japanese as soon as was practical, while initially holding Yorktown in reserve in case any other Japanese carriers were found. Spruance judged that, though the range was extreme, a strike could succeed and gave the order to launch the attack. The first plane took off from Spruance's carriers Enterprise and Hornet a few minutes after 0700. The Yorktown followed suit at 0800. Now, here's the thing. Spruance is looking at the extreme range between his carriers and the Japanese carriers, but he's also taking into account the fact that he's going to keep his aircraft carriers and his strike force moving towards the enemy right. to, to bring some of that gap in. So as the carriers are moving forward towards the enemy, they're getting closer to those planes that will be returning. So it is a risk. We're going to see some planes run out of fuel, but when you look at the complete outcome of this battle, you will probably have to agree that this was the right decision. Yeah. 
So the Japanese were able to launch 108 aircraft in just seven minutes. It took Enterprise and Hornet over an hour to launch 117. Spruance judged that the need to throw something at the enemy as soon as possible was greater than the need to coordinate the attack by aircraft of different types and speeds, fighters, bombers, and torpedo bombers. So this kind of goes back to like the Japanese very well orchestrated when things go perfectly, right? Like they have all their aircraft up on the flight deck and they're able to launch them. Boom, 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 boom. The Americans are kind of piecemealing things together and it takes them, you know, a lot longer to get those aircraft in the air, but they're setting up a big mix and they just were trying to get aircraft in the air. So not perfect circumstances, but the Americans are still able to get, get, uh, get aircraft in the air towards these, uh, these carriers. That, I mean, if you look at the average of the Japanese, that's one airplane off of each carrier every 20 seconds. Yeah, that's crazy. Get it in line, get it off the air runway and into the air in 20 seconds. That's pretty crazy. American squadrons were launched piecemeal and proceeded to the target in several different groups. This lack of coordination would diminish the impact of the American attacks and increase the casualty. But Spruance calculated that this was worthwhile since keeping the Japanese under aerial attack impaired their ability to launch a counter-strike. Japanese tactics preferred fully constituted attacks, like we've said earlier. And he gambled that he would find Nagumo with his flight decks at their most vulnerable. So like there's a there's like this thing in there, right? Like the OODA loop, right? The observe, orient, detect, and take action. And if you can constantly be inside of your opponent's decision-making capability and keeping him off his feet, you have a huge advantage in a fight. And this is exactly what Spruance is trying to do here, right? Like, I'm just going to continually send my aircraft against you with bombs and make you deal with this problem continually. That's what Spruance does, and, and, and it works here. And and it absolutely works. But I don't I don't think that Spruance took that into account that that Yamamoto and Nagumo were going to be so rigid in their doctrine and so incapable of, you know, bending to the needs. Um, but this is going to play absolutely into the American hands. The Japanese are going to be completely unprepared to, to to deal with one strike and then another strike and then a piecemeal strike. They would have been much better off, the Japanese, doctrinally, they would have been better able to defend against one massive attack at the same time, as opposed to the four or five that we're going to see here in a little bit. Now, or initially, American aircraft, they're going to have a difficulty locating the target, even though they know about where it's at, they're going to have a problem finding it. So despite the positions that they've been previously given, the strike from Hornet, led by Commander Stanhope C. Ring, is going to follow an incorrect heading. So mm-hmm. it's it he's about 15 degrees off on his compass reading. So as a result, our uh, Air Group 8's dive bombers are going to completely miss the Japanese carriers. Torpedo Squadron 8 from the Hornet, led by command, uh, Lieutenant Commander John C. Waldron. He's actually going to look at what Ring is doing and say, dude, this guy's off range. He's going to be unable to correct him. Uh, and he's just going to have his entire squadron break off from mm. Ring. And they're going to follow the correct heading. All right. So so we're going to have some, some messes in the air. We're also going to see 10... F4F Wildcats, those are fighters. Uh, they're going to come from the Hornet, and they're actually going to run out of fuel, and they're going to have to ditch into the ocean. So 10, 10 fighters run out of fuel because they can't find the aircraft carrier. Extreme range. They can't get home. Guess what? Those are 10 lost airplanes, and no action was taken on them. 10 what? <laughs> um, 15 degrees does not seem like a lot, you know, especially like you know, us army guys, like, you know, you're off 15 degrees in the woods. Like, okay, I'll just recorrect here, you know, in hundred meters. But when you're flying hundreds of nautical miles, you are very far off target. Oh, you, you probably couldn't even like, yeah, they, they can't see anything that's ha- like, they can't see any Japanese ships. They're so far away no, from them. They're way off target. All right. So Waldron squadron sighted the enemy carriers and began attacking at 0920. 
followed at 0940 by planes from Enterprise, whose Wildcat fighter escorts had lost contact, ran low on fuel, and had to turn back. So without fighter escort, all 15 Devastators of Squadron 8 were shot down with only one survivor. Squadron 6, led by Eugene E. Lindsay, lost 9 of its 14 Devastators, one ditch later, and 10 of 12 Devastators from Yorktown Squadron 3, who attacked at 1010. These planes were shot down with no hits on any Japanese vessel, thanks in part to the unreliability of the unimproved Mark 13 torpedoes. Midway was the last time the Devastator was used in combat. So uh, These that's... damn torpedoes, Bjorn. Man. Yeah, that, I mean, that's... So that's 34 Devastators gone in this initial attack and only only six of them come back yeah so 34 34 downed six of the 40 come back and those stupid unimproved mark 13 torpedoes are just going to be an absolute nightmare so the japanese combat air patrol flying mitsubishi a6 m20s made short work of the unescorted slow underarm devastators all of the american torpedoes either missed or failed to explode (laughs) <laughs> the Zeros are famously an amazing aircraft, especially early in the war against these really crappy American aircraft. Uh, they just like, yeah, just mince yeah. me is what they make. You, of the got a, you got this slow, terribly armed devastator. Some of the like these torpedo planes, they're they're two seaters. Uh, they might have instead of guns in the front. You know, it's it's tough when you're dealing with uh, with these planes trying with a gunner in the back seat. He's also mm-hmm. kind of your navigator dude. And he's. He's sitting there with with a handheld machine gun. It's not not a great look and not easy to defend against these Japanese zeros. But let's get back to these torpedoes because I want to wrap this up. We've mentioned so many times how bad, how bad the American torpedoes are. They're either going to miss. They're going to fail to explode. Um, The American torpedoes early in the war. Absolutely embarrassing. Shot after shot's going to miss. And here's what they here's what they tended to do. It's not like there was one little thing that could be tweaked in order to fix the performance of these torpedoes. Many times you would see the torpedo go way deeper than it was intended to go. And it would just pass right underneath the, the vessel that they're trying to attack. Okay. Other times you would launch it, it hit the water, and the contact with the water would cause it to explode prematurely. And oh, sometimes premature explosions, huh? Premature no yeah. one likes premature explosions. <laughs> But the the worst part about it, and this is probably the most embarrassing. Imagine you're on a, a, a vessel that's being attacked by an American torpedo, and all of a sudden you see it coming, and then it, you see it, and it's on its way, and it hits you, and then you hear an audible clang, bong, and Dude. that was it. it. Just completely fails to explode. Can you How imagine embarrassing. Like, be, like you're a Japanese sailor on the Soryu or whatever? And you hear that. You see the torpedo coming at you and you hear it. And think how terrifying that is. Like, I'm about to get blown up. And then the clang happens. And then think of the relief afterwards. Oh, like, oh, oh I'm yeah. still here. The the, oh the clang, the clang, or you just watch it. And I can just imagine you're, you're standing on the edge of that ship and you're watching this torpedo come at you. And then all of a sudden it comes at you. It doesn't hit. It doesn't explode as it's going underneath you. And then you run around to the other side of the ship. And there it is continuing on its way because it went too deep. All right, so despite the failures of these torpedoes, you know they don't score any hits. Uh, they did achieve three important results, though. So the first one was they kept the Japanese carriers off balance and unable to prepare and launch their own counter-strike, right? Like, even though these torpedoes aren't exploding and blowing up ships, they are still coming at you, and you have to react. You're reacting to them. You, I mean, it's human nature. So they're keeping the Japanese off balance. Second, the poor control of the Japanese cap meant they were out of position for subsequent attacks. And then third, many of the Zeros ran low on ammunition and fuel, uh, dealing with so many American planes. The appearance of a third torpedo plane attack from the southeast by Squadron 3 uh, from the Yorktown at 1000 
uh, very quickly drew the attention of the majority of the Japanese cap. So here's the thing, though. Better discipline and a better employment of that cap, so more zeros in the sky, keeping better control of them, might have actually enabled Nagumo to prevent the damage that's going to be caused by this coming American attack. Because this is, like you said, the first initial attack achieved very little in the form of damage done to the Japanese, but it's going to throw them off balance, it's going to keep them off balance, and it's going to prevent them from being able to react appropriately to the next attack which is coming. So by chance, at the same time Squadron 3 was sighted by the Japanese, three squadrons of Dauntlesses from Enterprise and Yorktown were approaching from the southwest and the northeast, Uh, so coming from two opposite directions. The two squadrons from Enterprise were running low on fuel because of the time spent looking for the enemy. Air Group Commander C. Wade McCluskey Jr. decided to continue the search and by good fortune spotted the wake of the Japanese destroyer Arashi, steaming at full speed to rejoin Nagumo's carriers after having unsuccessfully depth-charged the U.S. submarine Nautilus, which, if you remember, had unsuccessfully attacked the battleship Kirishima. Some bombers were lost from fuel exhaustion before the attack commenced. McCluskey's decision to continue the search and his judgment, in the opinion of Admiral Chester Nimitz, decided the fate of our carrier task force and our forces at Midway. All three American dive bomber squadrons arrived almost simultaneously at the perfect time, locations and altitudes to attack. Most of the Japanese cap was directing its attention to the torpedo planes from the Yorktown Squadron 3 and were out of position. So we are massing American aircraft at the right time, the right altitude, the right location to attack the Japanese carrier force. And to make matters worse, armed Japanese strike aircraft are going to be filling these carrier decks. Remember, there are fuel hoses snaked across the decks as refueling operations are hastily being completed. Repeated changing of ordnance from contact fuse bomb, land-based bombs to torpedoes. They're stacked all around the hangars rather than stowed safely in the magazines. The Japanese carriers are extraordinarily vulnerable and it just ready to go up in smoke. The powder keg is set. So beginning at 1022, the two squadrons of Enterprise's air groups split up with the intention of sending one squadron each to attack Kaga and Akagi. A miscommunication caused both of the squadrons to dive at Kaga. Recognizing the error, Lieutenant Richard Halsey Best and his two wingmen were able to pull out of their dives and after judging that Kaga was doomed, headed north to attack Akagi. Kaga sustained three to five direct hits, which caused heavy damage and started multiple fires. So we got one carrier hit, three to five direct hits. That's heavy damage. After that, Best and his two wingmen, the dudes who who pulled out of that dive, uh, realizing that, there were, that the Kaga was doomed, moves on to the Akagi. The Akagi sustains one direct hit of those, so of those three planes, one direct hit. And the sad part about it is that that one direct hit is going to prove enough to completely cripple the Akagi. Bomb's going to strike. Uh, there's going to be another one that's going to strike uh, kind of the water line and do some damage uh, off of the, the water. But the one is going to strike the edge amidship. The deck elevator penetrates into the upper hangar, explodes amongst the armed and fueled aircraft that are sitting there waiting. This bomb is going to cause major damage. It's going to start fires, and this is going to doom that carrier. The one that's going to strike underwater, it's going to be very close astern. It's actually going to bend the flight deck, and it's going to cause some critical rudder damage, but... At this point, one strike, one hit is going to be enough to doom the Akagi. And really, like, if you can eliminate flight operations on a carrier, that carrier is doomed anyways, right? Like, you destroy that elevator, they can't get planes up and down. It's kind of done. So even if you don't... I think that it, this ship will get sunk. But even if you just destroy the elevators, it's kind of it's kind of over, right? It's out of the game, but 
the Yorktown previously had sustained so much damage yeah. and and it survived. It made it back to port. They We fixed it up and it went back into battle in 48 hours. But here, because of the lack of uh, caution by the Japanese in their haste to get stuff done, that's going to doom the Akagi. Simultaneously with the attacks on Kaga and Akagi, the Yorktown's mm-hmm. dive bombers went for Soryu, scoring at least three hits and causing extensive damage. Gasoline ignited, creating an inferno, while stacked bombs and ammunition detonated. The torpedo planes targeted Hiryu, but achieved no hits. Within six minutes, Soryu and Kaga were ablaze from stem to stern as fires spread through the ships. Akagi, having been struck by only one bomb, took longer to burn, but she too was eventually consumed by flames and had to be abandoned. Isn't that crazy? So the entirety of the war, the the most significant battle of World War II in the Pacific, in less than six minutes, it's actually from the first hit to the last hit, four entire minutes. You know, you kind of call it the Battle of Midway, four minutes that changed history. Those three carriers in four minutes were hit. In six minutes, they were completely golfed in flames, and we're going to see a major American victory, but the game's not over yet. At 1046, Nagumo transferred his flag to the light cruiser Nagara. All three carriers remained temporarily afloat, as none had suffered damage below the waterline. Despite initial hopes that Akagi could be saved or at least towed back to Japan, all three carriers were eventually abandoned and scuttled. While Kaga was burning, Nautilus showed up again and launched three torpedoes at her, scoring one dud hit. Yeah, and one stupid more. torpedoes. Wow. The poor Nautilus. They're doing all they can, and they're not... <laughs> well, but if you think about it, so the Nautilus is doing all it can, but remember, the Nautilus attacked that battleship early on in the battle, and as a result, drew one of those destroyers, which then was utilized by American bombers to follow it True. as it raced back to the carrier fleet. So had the mm. Nautilus, which achieved almost nothing this entire battle, had the Nautilus not been trying its very best, that destroyer would not have led those American bombers towards the carrier, which would allow them to be perfectly positioned to distract the Japanese cap while other flights were perfectly capable of taking down the rest of these vessels. All right, let's take a quick look at where we stand right now on the scoreboard. Japanese, one carrier left. Americans have four carriers left. They have the three on the, on the sea, and they have the Midway Island carrier. So, nice. I love that. I love that. So it's not looking good for the Japanese right now. They are very much overmatched right now, but they have one aircraft carrier left. So the Hiryu, the sole surviving Japanese aircraft carrier, wasted little time in counterattacking. Hiryu's first attack wave, consisting of 18 dive bombers and six fighter escorts, followed the retreating American aircraft and attacked the first carrier they encountered, Yorktown, hitting her with three bombs, which blew a hole in the deck snuffed out all but one of her boilers and destroyed one anti-aircraft mount. Damage control parties were able to temporarily patch the flight deck and restore power to several boilers within an hour. This enabled her to resume air operations. 13 Japanese dive bombers and three escorting fighters were lost in this attack. So they have five dive bombers left and three um, three fighters left. That was That's an extremely costly battle when you're looking at the last of your aircraft carriers, but... I mean, they got the Yorktown, so... And remember, Yorktown is the carrier that we had fixed in Pearl Harbor and raced back to Midway. The Yorktown was already severely damaged before this battle. Yeah, I would have hated to be a a sailor on the Yorktown. Like, you feel like you got all sorts of bad luck. Approximately one hour later, Hiryu's second attack wave, consisting of 10 torpedo bombers and six escorting fighters, arrived over Yorktown. The repair efforts had been so effective that the Japanese pilots assumed that Yorktown must be a different, undamaged carrier. They attacked... 
uh, crippling New Yorktown with two torpedoes. She lost all power and developed a 23-degree list. Five torpedo bombers and two fighters were shot down in this attack. Okay, so just stop here for a second, Brendan. We're talking about how much damage the Yorktown took. Took two torpedoes and took a number of bombs and was still afloat. But yeah, so three bombs had, and two torpedoes hit her. Hang on here, Brendan. Let's talk about damage to these battle, to these carriers. The Yorktown sustains two torpedo hits and three a bomb number, hits. Three bomb hits yep. and is still afloat. Yep. But you've got the Akagi here, which sustains one direct hit. And the failure on the Japanese part to effectively protect themselves by, by cordoning away their explosives in their magazine and keeping a good, good track of their, of their fuel... That is going to cause a blaze that is going to run out of out of uh, control. Now, here's the thing: if one bomb hits and it's some, it's your enemy's bomb, which then causes all of your bombs to explode. That bad boy's been hit by more than one bomb. Yeah. That bad boy's been hit by dozens of bombs. Listen, that's the, the Americans just rolled super high in their attack rolls. The Japanese had a super low defense roll, and this is just what happens. <laughs> so. <laughs> there you go for another board game analogy for all the board game players. Uh, yeah. So news of the two strikes with the mistaken reports that each had sunk an aircraft carrier greatly improved Japanese morale. So right now, yeah, because the American maintenance crews were able to fix up the Yorktown so well, the Japanese thought they now had sunk two carriers instead of the one. The few surviving aircraft were all recovered aboard Hiryu, and despite the heavy losses, the Japanese believed that they could scrape together enough aircraft for one more strike against what they believed to be the only remaining aircraft carrier. But the York, a Yorktown scout plane late in the afternoon is going to locate this sole surviving Japanese carrier. It's going to prompt the Enterprise to launch a final strike, 24 dive bombers. Uh, and despite Hiryu being defended by a strong cover of more than a dozen Zero fighters, here's the deal. Like, when you're taking losses... It's time for you to get more fighters in the air. It's time to play the game. Uh, the The attack by the Enterprise and the Orphan Yorktown aircraft that are launched from the Enterprise is going to be successful. Four bombs, maybe a fifth is going to hit the Hiryu. She's going to be ablaze, unable to operate aircraft. Hornet strike launched late because of communications air is going to concentrate on the remaining escort ships. They're going to fail to score any hits, but that's the idea. We were so successful in attacking and destroying these Japanese carriers that we went to our secondary targets. Primary target, aircraft carrier. Secondary target, anything else else that you can get. So after a futile attempts at controlling the blaze, most of the crew remaining on Hiryu were evacuated and the remainder of the fleet continued sailing northeast in an attempt to intercept the American carriers. Despite a scuttling attempt by a Japanese destroyer that hit her with a torpedo and then departed quickly, Hiryu stayed afloat for several more hours. Right? So the Japanese are still going to try to continue the attack without their carriers. They still have battleships, they still have cruisers, they still have destroyers, and they still have submarines. So they're going to try and continue this attack a little bit to try and locate uh, these American carrier ships. It's not going to be successful. though. So as darkness fell... Both sides took stock and made tentative plans for continuing the action. Admiral Fletcher obliged to abandon the derelict Yorktown and feeling he could not adequately command from a cruiser, ceded operational command of Spruance. So here's where Spruance, he knows that the United States had just won a massive victory, uh, but he's unsure of what Japanese forces remain and what their determination is. So he has one goal now, safeguard both Midway and his carriers, but also to to destroy as much of the remaining Japanese forces as he can. Okay. So, uh, as he was aiding his aviators, remember we talked about this, he had continued to close with Nagumo's, uh, vessels during the entire day. Now he's going to continue this as night falls. Um, but 
He fears Japanese night encounters. Um, He thinks that the Japanese would be better prepared to defeat American forces if there was, in fact, a night engagement. And that's probably true. He's going to actually change courses. He's going to withdraw to the east. um, And then he's going to turn back after midnight. He's going to have a change of heart and say, well, let's go again. So this is a little bit of timidity on Spruance's part. He's had a great victory Uh, Does he want to continue? Does he want to follow it up? Does he risk that? Or does he take his winnings and go home? So that's going to be kind of some flip-flopping on his part. He's continuing on after the Japanese vessels during the day. The sun sets, fearing a night night attack by the Japanese. He's going to turn around. And then about midnight, he's going to have a change of heart again. He's going to turn around again. And at this point, he's still pursuing the Japanese now. Yeah, and that makes sense, though, too. The Japanese are known to be pretty strong at night maneuvers with surface vessels. And so I, I can understand Spruance's hesitation here to want to continue the attack into the night, especially like carriers are expensive, right? And it one or two hits from a battleship could take it out. And so I think he's kind of like, is it worth the risk now for us to try and, and destroy some of these other surface vessels when we've already gotten the big, the big get? Well, and I think that it's really fortunate for the United States that Spruance did not pursue. Uh, he had come into contact with Yamamoto. He would have come into contact with Yamamoto's heavy ships like the Yamato as a huge battleship in the dark. Japanese Navy naval superiority and night attack tactics at the time were so much better than Americans. High probability, as you said, that the Japanese cruisers, the Japanese battleships would have been able to overwhelm his carriers and potentially could have sunk some of them. Spruance failed to regain contact with Yamamoto's forces on 5 June, despite extensive searches. Towards the end of the day, he launched a search-and-destroy mission to seek out any remnants of Nagumo's carrier force. This late-afternoon strike narrowly missed detecting Yamamoto's main body and failed to score hits on straggling Japanese destroyer. The strike planes returned to the carriers after nightfall, prompting Spruance to order Enterprise and Hornet to turn on their lights to aid the landing. Over the next two days, several strikes were launched against the stragglers, first from Midway, then from Spruance's carriers, Makuma was eventually sunk by Dauntlesses, while Mokami survived further severe damage to return home for repairs. The destroyers Arashio and Ashishio were also bombed and strafed during the last of these attacks. Meanwhile, salvage efforts on Yorktown were encouraging, and she was taken in by tow uh, by fleet tug USS Verero. In the late afternoon of 6 June, the Japanese submarine I-168, which had managed to slip through the cordon of destroyers, fired a salvo of torpedoes, two of which struck Yorktown. There were few casualties aboard since most of the crew had already been evacuated, but a third torpedo from the salvo struck the destroyer USS Haman, which had been providing auxiliary power to Yorktown. Haman broke in two and sank with a loss of 80 lives. With further salvage efforts deemed hopeless, the remaining repair crews were evacuated from Yorktown. Throughout the night of 6 June and into the morning of 7 June, Yorktown remained afloat, but by 0530 on 7 June, observers noticed that her list was rapidly increasing to port. Shortly afterward, the ship turned onto her port side, revealing the torpedo hole in her starboard bilge. At 0701, the ship rolled upside down and slowly sank, stern first. All right, we're going to run here through the list of casualties. We'll start with the Japanese first. So the Japanese lose four carriers. They lose one heavy cruiser. They have one heavy cruiser damaged, two destroyers damaged, 248 aircraft destroyed, 3,057 sailors killed, and 37 captured. The United States, one carrier sunk, one destroyer sunk, 150 aircraft destroyed, 307 American sailors killed, including three killed as prisoners. So by the time the battle ends, the four carriers were Kagi, Kaga, Hiryu, and Soryu sunk along with the heavy cruisers Makuma. The cruiser Makami was also badly damaged. At the end of the battle for the U.S., they lost the carrier Yorktown and destroyer Haman. 
307 Americans have been killed, including Major General Clarence L. Tinker, commander of the 7th Air Force, who personally led a bomber strike from Hawaii against the retreating Japanese forces on 7 June. He was killed when his aircraft crashed near Midway Island. All right, Bjorn, that, that's the battle right there. Huge victory for the Americans. Major turning point in the war. This is this sets the stage for the Americans to begin their island hopping campaigns in the Pacific. So after winning a clear victory, and as pursuit became too hazardous near Wake, the American forces are going to retire. Spruance once again withdraws to the east to refuel his destroyers, rendezvous with the carrier Saratoga. See, the, the, the Saratoga, remember, was on the west coast ferrying much-needed replacement aircraft going as quick as it could to Midway. It's not going to make it in time for the battle, but it's going to provide those necessary reinforcements. Uh, Fletcher's going to transfer his flag to Saratoga. Remember, he was on Yorktown previously. And uh, it's going to be late on the 10th of June, after many days of searching and trying to catch stragglers from the Japanese Navy, he's going to order his ships to return to Pearl Harbor. Uh, The Japanese public and much of the military command are going to be kept completely in the dark to the extent of this defeat. The Japanese news announces a great victory, but only Emperor Hirohito and the highest naval command personnel are actually informed of how terrible of a loss this was. The Japanese army is still going to continue to believe for a while that the that the fleet was still in good condition. Japanese fleet returns to port in Japan on the 14th of June. The wounded are immediately taken to hospitals and placed in, sec- uh, in isolation as secret patients to keep them from sharing the news of this major defeat. It's interesting to note that none of the Japanese flag officers are going to be penalized for this defeat. Nagumo will actually take command of a rebuilt carrier force later on. Now, one of the theories is that it's because of the fact that the he initially reported that two, chap, two American carriers were sunk instead of just one. Um, the result of the defeat, new procedures are going to be adopted, whereby more Japanese aircraft are going to be refueled and rearmed on the flight deck instead of in the hangars. Remember, the hangars are the reason why it completely engulfed in flames. Uh, the practice is going to be draining. All unused fuel lines are going to be adopted. They're not going to leave these fuel lines snaking across the decks full of fuel. New carriers were being built. They're redesigned to incorporate only two flight deck elevators. Usually these previous ones had had three flight deck elevators and also new firefighting equipment. More carrier crew members are going to be trained in damage control and firefighting techniques. Replacement pilots push through an abbreviated training regimen in order to bring them up to uh, a sufficient strength. This is going to lead to a sharp decline in the quality of aviators that the Japanese are going to be able to produce. And uh, the Japanese... Uh, naval air groups as a whole are going to progressively just deteriorate deteriorate after the war, uh, and Americans are just going to improve. Lastly here, the Battle of Midway is often called the turning point of the Pacific. It was the Allies' first major naval victory against the Japanese, and had Japan won this battle as thoroughly as the United States did, the Saratoga would have been the only American carrier left in the Pacific. No new carriers for the United States were scheduled to be completed before the end of 1942, and well, the United States probably would not have sought peace with Japan, as we had discussed previously. Um, Yamamoto had hoped that they would, but our country... Uh, would have probably seen the Japanese uh, revive Operation FS, which was to invade and occupy Fiji, uh, Samoa. They would probably have attacked Australia, attacked Alaska and Ceylon, and even attempted to occupy Hawaii. So in the, in the time it took Japan to build three replacement carriers, the United States Navy had commissioned more than two dozen fleet and light carriers. This, Brendan, is where the United States completely overshadowed the Japanese and the Germans, for that matter, are capacity to build stuff. Our industrial capacity and industrial might is going to see us to victory in World War II. 
But by 1942, the United States was already three years into a shipbuilding program that had been mandated by the second Vinson Act of 1938. So we believed that war was coming in 1938, and we had decided that we were going to rebuild and rearm uh, our military forces, which had previously been in an isolationist category. And so in 1938, we are going to rebuild our, our Navy. We're going to begin that. And so those ships are actually going to begin rolling out in 1942. And that was huge for us. All right. Thanks, Bjorn. And that is it for the Battle of Midway and our first foray into World War II. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss our next series on the fall of Constantinople two weeks from today. MMG out. Thank you.